Welcome back to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 7, Episode 15, Repo Man. Let's get this show back on the road. How about we start 2024 with some love and gratitude for our patrons and coffee supporters. So we just want to say a huge thank you for your financial support. It really, really means the world to us. So let's start off 2024 with some positive vibes that way. 100%. Thank you, everyone who ever has been a backer, has tried to be a backer, will be a backer, and are. You have done amazing to help us keep the show running and to do the things we do and put the effort and time into it. Definitely. Now on a show note, I was right about this episode title. Meaning? It is directly referencing the musical I was referring to, Repo Man, the genetic opera, because Repo Man is literally about a Repo Man who repossesses organs that haven't been fully paid for medically. Lovely. So if you happen to need a new liver and then you can't make your payments, the Repo Man comes and repossesses that organ, much like our um, serial killer this episode was removing organs from his victim. So no musical starring... Anthony Stewart Head, which everyone should go look up and watch if they haven't. Gore warning, I guess, if you're not into that kind of thing. I'm glad for once I actually got like the reference to a title properly. You're kind of hinting at the fact that we are starting the year off with a bang because this episode was pretty dark. I remember the first time I watched it, I was not expecting the twist. It was, it definitely kept me like very, very engaged with the episode. And even now, whenever I watch it, I'm like, oh my God, that was such a good reveal, you know? <laughs> I have a point I want to bring up. I'm going to save it for story time because I do have a way to wrap it into our theme. While the twist was still really well done, there is like one key thing sticking out to me I want to get to. All right. Well, how about you get us started with the recap? I'm ready if you can't be down. Three, two, one, go. We have uh, the boys on a case that has them going back to a previous case that seems to have like reawakened, literally a cold case that's come clean again. And they figure out it might be the same demon they've already gotten rid of once before because it's the same MO and there's sulfur at the site. And like the other cops even remember them because the case is still, I guess, recent and fresh enough in memory. So they start going after the demon and they decide let's go after the people who helped us as well to make sure that they're safe because they can be targets for all this. And then we get the surprise twist that the guy who was possessed was in love with the demon and is trying to bring it back and realizes he needs Dean's blood to do it because Dean exercised him. And while all this craziness is happening, Lucifer's back in Sam's head and apparently had never left, but is now slightly stronger or more apparent. Maybe some trauma we'll get to later. Ultimately, it looks like Lucifer's here to stay a little longer. They do eventually kill the serial killer and exercise the demon once again. And the... Uh, more or less, everything's okay, except for a bit of a weird ending where Dean says some things that Sam might not like. Time. There you go. This episode was written by Ben Edlund, directed by Thomas J. Wright. This is his first episode for Supernatural, and he is going to be directing some episodes all the way through to season 14, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Nice. And this originally aired on February 17th, 2012. It's always fun to get a new director or a new writer in, especially to learn like 
after having seen this episode, I agree, a very dark one, but not a bad episode per se. I love Repo Man. It's one of the ones in this season, probably one of my favorites this season, if not my favorite. To be fair, season seven ranks very, very low in general in my personal ranking system. But this episode I felt was really well crafted and really well executed. Overall, like it really is a top-notch episode. It feels well constructed. It doesn't really have any major like, eh, like we'll, we'll get to the few things I have with it, but like they're all like very minimal. So the road so far takes us back to our roots, quite literally, with Lilith in season four, Lucifer in season five, and a good old reminder of the great idea that was putting a wall in Sam's mind in season six. The episode takes us back three years in time, so right around the time that Sam and Dean were looking for Lilith and trying to prevent her from breaking the 66 seals. I like the world building of, like, we don't see every case they take. Clearly, shit happens when we're not watching. I don't know if this was done intentionally, but to me, I read it as a little nod to, like, fanfic writers who will find those little gaps in between cases and write their own stories in between. And I feel like this is in that spirit. It's done in that spirit, and I really definitely appreciate that. So thank you, Ben Edlund. We get our rock aliases back for the first time in a while, right? So like as a reminder, uh, the boys are currently not using those aliases in order not to attract attention from the Leviathans. But here, because the detective remembered them from three years ago, they do use them because he remembers that rock alias. I even like that he calls out it's clearly a rock alias because he references them as the drummers because they just happen to use two famous drummers' names. Like, I just... That was a very, very lovely moment. This episode does a lot to tug at our heartstrings, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, but it really is trying its best to remind us of why we are watching Supernatural, right? Agreed. We finally come back to the storyline of Sam having Lucifer in his head. Like, I say finally because... I feel like that would have been a really cool storyline to explore like a lot more before mid-season. But like, again, like, at least we finally get to it now. So I'm happy about that. It's the kind of storyline you could have left very subtle moments of like, just, you know what, when they're in the car and Dean is clearly not looking at Sam, have him like looking over his shoulder and doing the hand thing. Like, just like remind us as an audience, it's ever present. This episode makes it clear it's ever present. But I think having the like physical clues leading up to now would have given it more impact and ultimately would have just been more fun to have the story. And finally, throughout this episode, we're going to see Lucifer take up more and more room in Sam's mind, which we're going to be talking about in a minute, like up to the point where Lucifer tells them like no nap for you. And he basically sets the room, the motel room on fire, which is when we should all have an inkling that shit's about to go really, 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 really bad. And on a weird side note, I love that Lucifer helped me this episode with pointing out the weirdness of the motel room that you've made me realize now I've been just ignoring forever. Did you really never notice that the motel rooms all had a theme? There's definitely a few that stood out to me as like looking a little funny or being like a little like, I don't believe that's a cheap motel that looks like a like mid-level hotel room almost. But like this one being, as he puts it, avocado grime is just like a little extra gross. And I kind of love that. This week, our theme is fragments. The word fragment is, as a verb, uh, comes from the Latin meaning to break, to shatter, to fracture. And so the noun would be the result of that action, like the pieces that are left after the break. 
And I think that this is an interesting theme to get into for this episode, especially for Sam, but also for Dean, I think. This is our first, like, Sam episode in a while. Like, I'd even argue last episode with the clowns was still, like, pretty evenly split, if not more Dean almost. I love that we have a Sam episode where we still get, like, some Dean interactiveness with theme. Speaking of Dean, would you like to get us started? I think that Dean's like main fragmentation, like if we can call it that, I guess, has been happening for like a very long time. Like he spends a lot of time in this episode looking back at his actions with Jeffrey in season four. And I think that that reminds him of parts of himself that he'd rather forget. And when I'm talking about that, I'm thinking specifically about like his time in hell, the time that he spent torturing other souls and and that kind of stuff. And even when he looks back at how Jeff, how he was with Jeffrey, I think that there's like, you know, there's regret or at least, or maybe disgust. I'm not too sure. I think a lot of all of that, you know, it's like the, those things that he keeps compartmentalized in a different box, you know, that he doesn't like to think about too, too much. Yeah. It's been a long time since we've seen Dean interact with anyone in that manner. Like even before hell, it was something we'd see them do where they trap a demon or trap a creature and like get it to talk. It, like, didn't really occur to me, really. But, like, we haven't had that in a long time. Like, it's something he's really, like, removed himself from. And especially, as you said, to, like, kind of connect it to the fact that it's part of his history. But also, more specifically, the part of him that did this in hell. It would make sense that it's a part of you that you would, like, you know you don't want to have as part of you. So you, like, take it apart and lock it away. Like, he has chosen to fragment himself in that way. Despite this, he is still, like, so, like, you could tell he's not happy with it. The way he treats Jeffrey shows that there's, like, a level of him that feels like he owes him and has to, like, earn forgiveness from him. Which I think is where my, like, I want to bring up my little gripe here, which is the fact that he is almost like blinded by remorse for Jeffrey that he's like too lenient with him uh, to the point of walking an innocent and scared man into a supposed demon lair. Did we not learn a few episodes ago to not bring innocent people into monster fights in creepy houses and warehouses at him? You know, it's so funny because that really didn't bother me when I was watching it. And even now, like it doesn't, it's not something that I think about. All right. Well, I mean, you know, there you go. It's true. He, maybe he shouldn't have taken him. I can't remember if there was a specific reason for it or not. He is clearly, like, distraught by the memories of this. That something he has cut away from himself, this part of him that used to do this, whether it be since hell, which is even, like, worse because it's bringing back hell memories, or even before that when he just sees how horrible he had been to anything, creatures or otherwise... I think he is just so, like, torn and, like, distracted that he doesn't think about, like, not that he's, like, not thinking about Jeffrey's safety, but he's just sort of, like, going along with the flow a little more because he's distracted. Like, I feel like a less distracted Dean in a more, like, stable mood would have told the guy, okay, I know where to go now. You stay here. And, like, yes, he would have obviously followed him in and been a shithead murderer, but, like... To walk him in with his dog is just like, why are you doing this? I think distracted is right. But like Dean's grieving process has not been 
uh, particularly smooth. Uh, and I'm talking like Cass and Bobby here. So I think that makes a lot of sense what you're saying, to be honest. We've seen him be distracted. We've seen him, you know, he's received warnings from Bobby. He's received warnings from Frank. So we know that like this is something that is ongoing with him and it's very, very much alive in this episode. So it, it makes sense what you're saying. This is something that I've seen the fandom talk about before. So I do want to bring it up. There's something else at play here that there seems to be like this bit of a parallel between Dean and Jeffrey. Now, bear with me, because I know that that's if this is not something that you've ever heard, you're probably going to be like, Dean is nothing like Jeffrey. I know. I know. We're going to talk about that, too. So Jeffrey is like in love with his demon, right? Like he says he loved him and that he was the love of his life. And his demon is taken away from him, and that made him like super severely depressed. He contemplated suicide. And if we turn our attention to Deed, he's also lost a supernatural being that he loved, Cass. Like Cass helped bring out a part of Dean or like a fragment of Dean, if we want to stay with the, the word that we chose as a theme, that actually believes that he is worth love. He's worthy of love and help and support. Losing him also got him so severely depressed that he also con contemplated suicide. So of course, like Jeffrey is like the dark version of Dean here, but I think I really do see the parallel between the two and the grieving process that they both went through. And Jeffrey, of course, is taking it to like the absolute darkest extreme. You know, I think it's interesting to kind of see how different people react to different things. I like this for Dean as a parallel. Like, I understand why some people might be like, whoa, this is a bit extreme. But like, no, nah, that's a really good mirror. I love this. Like, weirdly love this. And also, like, I just love the idea. This is, like, the kind of thing I could see somebody in the writing room or, like, production team pitching, knowing the, like, gay implications it would have for Dean. And, like, some of those, like, anti-Destiel people on the crew would, like, not realize it. So, like, kind of a win for the Destiel fans. What you're talking about here is the kind of queer coding that I love. It's the, or, or I should say. It's the kind of queer coding that I think requires courage, meaning when you're trying to add little hints and little, like sprinkle little bits of gay into your character coding, but doing it in a way that is not necessarily visible to the straight people who are making the show in order to allow queer people to see themselves on screen. That to me is queer coding as a means of resistance. A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, we also just want people to be able to write queer characters openly. That is absolutely the end goal. But I think that this is, of all the kinds of queer coding that exist, this is the one that I admire the most. Uh, with Dean wrapped up, shall we discuss Sam? So in this episode, we're watching like Sam's entire being fragment, like shatter completely. He's literally falling apart in front of our eyes. And that's really like what we're going to see throughout this discussion. We are legitimately watching Sam, who we know has a fragmented like mind right now. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, so 
if we start like from the beginning, like I think that we need to look at like how the episode starts and how the episode finishes for Sam. Like actually, like let's even go back further because last episode, Sam went through arguably a pretty traumatic event, right? Like with the clowns chasing him and all that stuff. And at the beginning of this episode, we're seeing him again, like seeing Lucifer or like still, like it's not super, super 100% clear because we, the audience, haven't really been seeing Lucifer like all that much since earlier this season. And I know that there are like logistical reasons for that. They couldn't necessarily have the, you know, Mark Pellegrino on set all the time. I'm just, I'm just naming, right? Not, this is not a critique. This is just naming things. So like, did the last episode unlock something for Sam? Like, we know that this episode does for sure, and we'll talk about that, but I really do wonder if Sam was maybe in an already, like, vulnerable state of mind here. I, I could definitely see that. I, I'd even be willing to bet that something like the scene in the library was, like, an extreme level of activity that he probably hasn't experienced in a while. So despite the fact that he was able to ignore him or continue to ignore him, Lucifer was able to go a little further than just appear and make some comments for the first time in a while because there's a reaction from Sam in that moment that we haven't seen in a while. Well, the thing is, like, this entire episode really builds. Like, it starts off, like, as him ignoring Lucifer, and then it moves on to something else, right? So, like, we see Sam, like, really devolving, like, into these hallucinations. Like, at first, Sam refuses to listen to Lucifer like entirely but then it turns out that Lucifer is actually remembering things about the case that Sam doesn't right so he listens to him more and more and then he allows uh Lucifer to take up more and more space in his mind and I think that this really shows like how fragmented Sam really is right now because we know that Lucifer isn't actually in his mind right but somehow Lucifer still represents a part of Sam right now I think, in his mind. That's how I'm choosing to see it. And, like, if we remember also season four, season four was the time that, like, the plot of this episode is referring to, right? And so this is when Sam was drinking demon blood. And so what does that tell us about Sam, that his hallucination of Lucifer would remember more of that time than he does? Oh, I love that. It's dark. Like, the entire Lucifer thing just gives the same vibe as Sherlock's mind palace to make a reference. But as we all like seem to be in agreement that Lucifer is just an illusion, I'm getting the vibe we're all on that same page. Lord knows I'll be wrong. He's using his memory of hell and his fears to like shut him down a little bit. Like Lucifer knowing things is just Sam visualizing his recollection of of details. If we focus on the name of the detective as a great example at the beginning of the investigation, it does seem to give off the vibe of like Sam not recalling details that he has naturally moved on from and like left like out of his conscious mind and have now begun to exist in the subconscious with Lucifer. So his own mind is so fractured that even his subconscious non-horror memories are something he's afraid to reach for in fear of reaching Lucifer. There you go. Like that time is so painful for him that he is like locked it away. And like, I think that that tells us so much about how he sees this past version of himself and like how much he's worked to like dissociate or like to break from that version of him. 
And like, this is also very reminiscent of like the end of season six with all with the three different Sams, right? If you remember. And it also speaks to how like some traumas bring you right back to like build on other past traumas. I'm thinking about how some folks will go into like survival mode, meaning like reaching for actions and like coping mechanisms that like they really don't need in regular circumstances. But then they they know that those things have kept them alive before uh, or kept them going before. And so like uh, they reach for those when they're again undergoing trauma. And I think like it even goes further in the sense that like Sam recalls that whole split like memory thing you know sam sees his mind as fragmented like we we saw it physically manifested with the three sams you know he's afraid that reaching across one fragment to the next can open a connection and allow those versions of himself back which is the last thing he wants because that's just inviting lucifer to take full control or you know ride shotgun a little more than usual and this is why he's actively choosing not to recall something like the detective's name because he has put together that it resides in a part of his mind that he's not comfortable accessing. Like we have that moment where Lucifer is like muttering the name to him, showing that like the part of his mind that is occupied by Lucifer has those memories. And rather than, and like literally we, we understand that Sam is clearly hearing this information divulged to him by his own mind. And he is actively choosing to ignore even his own mind, telling him information that he knows is factual. Oh, oh, Sam. Oh, Sam. Oh, Sam, you you went for a big one. I know, Sam. Sam's not doing too hot right now. <laughs> There's not enough Advil or Tylenol in the world for this. I also really want to highlight the library scene. I know you talked about it earlier, but I kind of want to come back to it. When people just like start banging their heads against the desk and like it turns out that it's only happening in Sam's mind. I think that this is obviously also linked to like the la- the final scene where Sam sees like the motel room on fire. Like I said, we can figure out that it's not really happening. It's only in his head. I felt like these were such good representations of intrusive thoughts. Like it was just like such a, like no notes. I was like, yep, that, yep. Okay, yep, I see that. <laughs> there's clearly a moment where like there's some level of panic in him because it's likely been a while since he's seen something this drastic from Lucifer. There's like that hesitancy because he really does believe it's not real. Um, like you, I'm confident the flames at the end are in his mind. I imagine if the room had spontaneously combusted. Uh, I don't care how asleep you are. You probably noticed that if you've only been asleep for 11 seconds, Dean. But like you said, it really does show us that Sam is like not confident. Like he's choosing to act as if it's always fake first and ground himself, but we saw it in the library, like, there is a level of, like, I'm choosing to believe it's fake, but I don't know that it's fake. You know, when we were talking about him having a better grip on reality and using pain to ground himself, that no longer works, right? Like, he has gone to another level of mental illness. Like, he needs more help than he needed uh, back then. I also felt so vindicated when I saw the red lighting on Lucifer's face. I was like, yeah, I got that right. And like, again, like with the theme of fragmentation, like it's no longer Sam, the whole person that's in the red light. It's Lucifer, which is one part of Sam. So I just thought that that was like a really evocative uh, frame in the episode. Oh my God. Yes. When I, when that like 
cut that like very blatant like lucifer in the red lighting like suddenly i was like yes (laughs) it does make me wonder were all of the previous times we saw sam in red lighting times where lucifer was present and trying to get him to do something maybe i mean we did talk about the fact that those (laughs) tended to happen when sam was particularly disturbed or distraught by something and so it's possible that those were moments where he was struggling this is one of those things they could do that I think would just earn them so many points and obviously the show is over. So this isn't something I can like hope for. Maybe I'll be surprised and it does happen. But if we were to get like flashbacks to like a majority of those moments. No, we're not going to get see that. I'm sorry. I, I know. <laughs> the show is not that good, but it's, it, oh man, like a, a better show would have had something like that. I would have loved it. So Lucifer says, um, that's what I'm talking about, Sam. Real interaction again. I miss that. The rapier wit, the wittier rape. Come on, I'll be good. So anyway, we're not going to go into detail about that because we did talk about it quite a bit in the Becky episode that we just did. Uh, But it definitely, again, adds weight to this idea that Lucifer used sexual violence against Sam in the cage. There is at least three separate instances of Lucifer making comments in this regard. Yeah, there you go. Like there's there's a lot that's going on. And like I said, we, we have talked about it especially on our episode uh, with Consent, Season 7, Time for a Wedding. So if you would like to hear more of our thoughts regarding that, you can definitely go back to that one. Um, So Dean's last line uh, of this episode, when Sam says that, like, Jeffrey was just acting, he says, he was a psychopath, Sam. That's That's what they do all the time, is act. Act like they're normal. Act like they're not balls to the wall crazy. And, like... Can we talk about that? Like, do we think that Sam is a psychopath who's just acting like a regular person? Like, is that what we're supposed to think here as the audience? No, this is so very clearly the show setting up for us the storyline of Sam thinking that Dean thinks he's a psychopath based on this description. Uh, The reality is Dean, surprise, surprise, is not a trained medical professional with the capacity to diagnose someone's mental health. He is someone who throws around these kinds of terms in hyperbole, and Sam is the type to overanalyze said hyperbole and consider Dean might be right. So yes, what you suggest is what we are going to get, but I want to make it very clear, Dean is not a doctor. I also don't think that this is what we're supposed to think, but I did see the line as like the deep-rooted fear of people with mental illness that others just won't understand, right? Like, because when you're actively ill, when you're actively in mental illness, like what you show others isn't necessarily what is happening inside of you or inside your mind. Uh, Like there is a fragmentation or at least a compartmentalization there too. And it's like, who's going to believe me? Because like, I might look fine. So what gives, right? And that's not the case for every mental illness. I do want to acknowledge that. But there are certain kinds where you are able to like mask to a certain degree, right? Um, And so there's that fear of like, oh my gosh, but if I tell them how bad it is, they're going to think I'm crazy or that I'm lying or that I'm looking for attention. Like there is that fear that is there. And like that fear can delay people in asking for help. And I just... You know, I think that this is an interesting thing to bring up on this show to say like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Ask for help regardless. He made the incision, sliding the scalpel down the sternum like the zipper of a new sweater. Gliding smoothly. 
with no hitch. With little to no effort, the body was open. He began the examination and went through the motions, cataloging each organ and remarking on any abnormalities. He stopped a moment, with the heart firmly resting in his hand. It sat motionless, as they've always done before when he's held one, and he imagined what one would feel like if it were still beating, calm and slow, or rushed and violent. Soon he was done. Nothing interesting to report. Everything looked normal, and there were no pending investigations nor family to collect the body. He triple-checked his work. He was a diligent man, after all, and took pride in his craft. Smiling, he closed up the corpse and pushed it back into its temporary frozen home, among the other dead, who awaited their turn to be splayed out before him. He left the exam room and began cleaning himself off. The day was over, a productive one. He sat at his desk and pulled out a long list of names. He ran his pen across a name on this list, all the while smiling. Next, his pen hovered above the next name, planning how tomorrow he'd be meeting them for a date and how their heart might beat calm and slow, or rushed and violently. been pretty clear this season that it has been challenging for me like I just don't really like the first half of season seven and I've been pretty clear about that I'm not gonna rehash like why I hated this season so far I've done that enough already but I will mention that doing this podcast usually changes my mind about episodes or storylines right like just because of how much time we invest in talking about them and making sense of them and like this kind of proximity has made me change my mind in the past. Like, let's think about bugs, for example. Like, I don't hate <laughs> bugs half as much as I hated it when we first started this show. And the more we go, the more I discover, I'm like, oh shit, like we talked about that in bugs. Like that goes back to bugs. I was kind of like trying to keep an open mind with season seven, but the reality is that I really haven't changed my mind about this half of the season. Like it's been really painful for me to go through if I'm being entirely honest. And like, I really had to hang on to like the process of doing the podcast, like our conversations and like having fun with you rather than like just relying on enjoying the content. So hopefully like listeners were able to hang on with us and make it through. And so it really feels like this episode marks the beginning of the half of season seven that I really like. And like, I think that the tonal shift of this episode, not only compared to the last episode, but also within the season as a whole, is really important because it signals like a return to like 
original supernatural roots with the storyline revolving around demons and demon possession, but also with a storyline that brings the brothers like right back to a time when they were fighting Lilith and the 66 seals and the apocalypse. Like this is all very familiar to us as listeners and as, as viewers. It's like the show is trying to say like, okay, like we know we've made a lot of changes, some of which you weren't fans of like killing Cass and killing Bobby and this whole thing with the Leviathan and moving away from the angels and the demons. But like, trust us, we're still the show that you fell in love with. We promise you that. And so I think that the rest of this season is going to be about trying to keep that promise and, and, and realizing that promise, basically. Like it really feels like a weird return to form dealing with a demon like i think we had like what one other demon like briefly this season but like really like even that one didn't feel like a classic demon it was a crossroads demon which i feel is like a different category almost it brings us back to the stuff we loved about the show and the thing is like we're going to be talking about that in a future episode i'm telling you right now but ratings were vastly declining at this point of, of the show airing. And so I think that there was a need for them to return to those things that people did love, because I think that the changes that were made in season seven were just too much of a departure from what people liked about this episodic 24 episode season show. And they had to kind of like go back to where they were. They had to backtrack on a few things and some things are going to have to give. Well, like I said, I'm aware that Cass returns, so clearly they figure their shit out eventually. Ish. This week we have a message from Jack. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us that recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, what's your favorite library you've been to? For our Roadhouse supporters on our Impala Talk, stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Hey, um, it's Jack Dan, aka Vigilante Sam on TikTok and Autism Dean on Tumblr, and I wanted to talk a little bit about another piece of American literature, just in your episode where you discussed um, Slaughterhouse-Five and its connection to Supernatural. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about On the Road by Jack Kerouac. So it's it's one of my favorite books of all time. Like, I love Kerouac's writing style, and I generally love the Beat Generation poets. Um, but this one in particular, I think, is interesting about its connections. So I wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, connection between Sal and Dean and Sam and Dean. So uh, there's this line that I think about a lot in Sal's narration where he talks about seeing sprinklers on the lawns of the place where Dean supposedly was born. And he's like, I can't imagine him living anywhere like that. So he really associates Dean with, you know, the opposite of a normal life, which there's definitely some queer coding there. Um, Like he sees him as the perfect opposite to existing as a normal functioning member of society and i think for the first couple of seasons of supernatural it is how sam views dean like as the opposite of the normal life he really wants um which is why he seems to resent him and john 
a lot in the first couple seasons. So I was just wondering your opinions on that, and yeah. Thank you so much. I love your podcast. Jack, thank you so much for this lovely voicemail. I'm going to start with a little anecdote. So when I was younger, before this was before social media, this was before cell phones, like we had one TV in the house and like it was, you know, there was no streaming. So we were just watching like whatever channels we're playing. And uh, I, I used to read a lot of books and uh, most of the books that I read were books that my dad picked out for me. Like he he would give me, feed me quite literally books. And that's why I've read so much like classic French literature, because that's really what he what he favored for me. But at one point when I was a bit older, like in my teens, he started talking about Kerouac, Kerouac a lot. And he was like, you know, but you're too young for this. You're too young for this. And I really genuinely do think that he didn't want me to read a book with homosexuality in it, which is why he never gave me On the Road to read. And so I've never actually read On the Road. And that I feel is a big missing piece of me understanding supernatural lore. So a little bit, or, or at least origin stories. And so a little bit the same way that I am slowly going back and watching the X-Files. Like one of the things that I do want to do eventually is read on the road because I hear people talking about this so often. And I know that it's been said by Kripke that he was very, very uh, inspired by that book. And so I, I, I definitely want to go back and read it. Now, to answer your question, I mean, what is more queer coded than somebody who can't fit into society, heteronormative society, the white picket fence, you know? Uh, so I, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I think what I do find interesting is the fact that Sam resents him for it. Um, because it seems like there's this, you know, this this desire to live this white picket, picket fence that he knows he can't have so long as he is associated with Dean. Um, or at least that's what he thinks, right? Sam, when he is younger, tends to think in absolutes. So it's like either or. I can't have all of it. Like if I leave, I leave everybody behind. I leave dad and I leave Dean. When... You know, at the end of the day, he could have very easily left the family unit and yet still been in contact with Dean. But again, like we're talking about two characters who have been raised in an emotionally unstable household with an emotionally unavailable parent. And so, like, I think I, I understand why Sam thought that way and why it did end, it, end up happening that way. But I just find it fascinating just how how unadjusted these these children teenagers and now adults really are because of john so again sorry to kind of always bring it back to john but i just my goodness jack thank you as someone who is very bad at books like i just have trouble reading books but i was made aware through this show and through conversations the connections to on the road and hearing your description of the two protagonists and the idea of this, their, their Dean not being able to fit into this heteronormative white picket fence life, it really brings back thoughts of like early season Sam and Dean. Like it's clear as day that you have the one who tried to escape this life and go to a normal, quote unquote, normal American dream style life. And then seeing someone like his, like Dean, who you could never see in that space. And then weirdly of all the things and I, Mary already knows where I'm going with this. 
the thing it makes me think of is bugs. <laughs> I know I was thinking about bugs too. <laughs> it's a foundational episode. I don't care what anybody has to say. Oh my god, it's like a meme how foundation how like it's become like reference on this show. I know. Point. Supernatural, the podcast who started off hating bugs and loves it now. <laughs> oh my god, by the end we're gonna do like an episode of Ray Heal Bureau like top five somehow. Um, <laughs> Carrying Wayward Hearts Bugs. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's our next merch item. There you go, our next sweater. <laughs> but all that to say, it like I like the evolution of like even Dean can't see himself in places like that, despite loving some of the aspects that come along with it. You know, it's not just Sam looking at Dean saying like, Ooh, you're not uh, the guy who's going to settle down, but it's Dean seeing it in himself, but still, you know, I'll never settle down. Although I really do like this cozy shower. <laughs> I, I don't know. It just, it, it brings a lot to mind and I do love the comparison and I feel like it. it's almost going to be a thing where I'm going to have to read it at some point. You can listen to it as an audiobook. That counts too. I mean, I don't see why you would like be violent with yourself and force yourself to read a book when you can just listen to it and it does the same thing. I work. mean, even listening to books, I'm taking my sweet ass time with Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Lord of the Rings of all freaking books, of all freaking stories is all about the journey, Drew. Like it doesn't matter how long it takes you. <laughs> But nonetheless, I love this, Jack. Thank you. And I love voicemails that point out connections like this to other, like, bits of media that tie into it. I always like that kind of getting a chance to compare characters. Do you have any reflection and call to action this week? I am not a doctor. It's a good statement of fact. <laughs> <laughs> but my call to action, more specifically, is I cannot diagnose myself specifically my own mental health. What I can do is I can see a professional and do right by myself by at least asking or looking into it or inquiring. Right now, I am in a position where finding a doctor to do that with me in my province is nigh impossible, but I am taking some steps to look into seeing a mental health professional to look into things that I am curious about with my own mental health. That's awesome. And you, any call to action and reflection for this week? I mean, realistically, it's it's the same thing. Like this this Sam storyline in this episode, like really reminds me of like how important it is to ask for help, like as early as you can before it gets too bad. And even if it does get bad, or even if it get get if it gets like really bad, ask for help anyway. And if it gets even worse, and you're really ashamed about it, like ask for help anyway. Especially when it comes to mental health, like it is, it's just. Ask for help wherever you are in your journey. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigou and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our Bunker supporters, L, Jeremiah Thomas, and Simone. This week, we'd like to thank Jack for the message. You can go to CarryingWayward.com for the links to our merch store and all of our socials. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron or a coffee subscriber. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify and a review on Apple Podcasts. Carry on our wayward friends.
But I think my favorite library that I've ever been to is, I can't remember the name of it, but it's the, the Grande Bibliothèque de Montréal. It's like the big public library in Montreal. It's huge. Like it's like multiple floors. Like it's it's got like spaces for like talking. Like it's just a huge, beautiful, beautiful library. And um, Yeah, if you're ever visiting Montreal, like the access is free. So if you want to go see it, you can definitely do that.